Today we begin a new sermon series, a series of messages from the book of Hebrews that we've entitled, Pay Attention. Pay Attention. So if you would, grab your copy of scripture or a device where you can find it and turn with me to the book of Hebrews beginning in chapter 1 where we will be today. Apollo Robbins is an American sleight of hand artist. He's a self-described gentleman thief. Now, Robbins was actually born in Plainview, Texas, but he gained notoriety after pickpocketing Secret Service agents accompanying former President Jimmy Carter. At one point, he successfully stole, among other items, former President Carter's itinerary and the keys to his motorcade. It's what allowed him to later be called by Forbes magazine an artful manipulator of awareness. Now Robbins uses those skills today to entertain crowds, to put on illusions, to show his sleight of hand. In a recent event, Robbins was in front of a crowd of people and he began his show by inviting them to pay attention. Robin says part of his craft, part of his skill, isn't so much about controlling your attention, because after all, how could he possibly control your attention? No, his art is about managing attention. Standing in front of a crowd full of people, he asks them, how good are you at paying attention? As an example, he had them pull out their cell phone and try and remember what was the bottom right icon on their cell phone. About half the room raised their hand that they could remember and then checked. And he said, well, everybody's cell phone has a clock on it. What time was it when you checked? Even fewer could remember. His point was that we see things, we pass by things. There are things all around us that we don't always pay attention to, even if they're there, even if we see them. He tried one more trick to show them where their attention was, had the whole crowd close their eyes one by one. A dangerous thing to do when a pickpocket is the one giving the speech, but they all closed their eyes. He told them, I want you to think, what am I wearing? He was wearing a charcoal three-piece suit, a purple button-up shirt, and a dark gray tie. Not very many of them raised their hands with their eyes closed. They could even remember what clothes he was wearing, even though he'd been talking for several minutes right in front of them. Managing attention, he said, is what he was up to. He started to work his way into the crowd. He went out in there to get a volunteer, looking for someone to come up onto the stage. And he, uh, meeting and greeting a few person before he came to Bob, who he invites up onto the stage and begins to perform his sleight of hand acts in front of the whole crowd. He's tapping Bob on one shoulder and ruffling his other sleeve while also patting him on the back and next thing you know he's waving Bob's watch in front of the crowd took it right off his wrist everybody laughed puts it, Bob's watch on his own wrist keeps the act going he's tapping one shoulder he puts a coin on his shoulder puts it back in his hand takes it out of his hand the whole time Bob's head is just spinning as he can't seem to keep his attention where the trick is actually happening the crowd can see it they see Robbins hold up Bob's wallet and wave it in the air while Bob's looking at Robbins's hand they see him move his watch from his wrist to their wrist. The crowd thinks it's hilarious. He was managing Bob's attention. However, at the end of the show, the finale, if you will, 
Apollo Robin stands in front of the crowd and says, now I want to ask you again the question I asked you at the beginning of this show. What am I wearing? A gasp spread across the crowd. When he asked a second time, he was wearing a black pinstripe blazer with an untucked gray button-down shirt underneath. The crowd suddenly realizes that in the midst of laughing at Bob, in the midst of seeing him work the crowd and pick a volunteer from among them and take him up there, at some point, Apollo Robbins had changed clothes. You see, the whole time, the real attention wasn't focused on what he is wearing, and somewhere they missed what had happened right in front of them. It's like the old magician's trick. If I want you to look at my right hand, I look at that one so you don't see what my left hand is doing. The writer of the letter of Hebrews makes the point that we need to pay much closer attention to this new word that's been spoken to us in these recent days, these last days from God himself. The writer of Hebrews puts in front of us Jesus himself as if to say, look closer, look at him again. Your attention is being distracted by other things. But right in front of you is a new word that you need to look at again. And maybe even more so, if you want to invite the world to see Christ for who he is and allow that to transform what it means for you and I and the world to be, to be human and to love neighbor and to love God, you have to look first. You have to look first for yourself at Christ. Because if I want you to look at my right hand, I have to be right, looking at my right hand. Managing attention. And so this series called Pay Attention will walk us through the book of Hebrews and invite us to see the, the comparisons that the letter to the Hebrews is making to angels and priests and others in order to exalt Christ, to lift him up in front of us and show him again who he is, inviting us to, to look closer, to listen more carefully so that we too can behold and hear and apply and live this new word from God that we have received in his son. So that's where we begin in the letter to Hebrews, inviting ourselves to pay attention, asking where we might have been distracted, and inviting others to follow us as we look again to the author and perfecter of our faith. Now the letter to the Hebrews, as a way of introduction to the letter as we begin it in this series, has an anonymous author. The eloquent speech has led some to assume that maybe it was Apollos mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, but we know that it wasn't, don't necessarily know that it was Apollos. We know it certainly was not Paul or other authors, and so the author has remained anonymous. What we do know is that in chapter 2, it's confirmed that this author knew the disciples who had been with Jesus. So the author has uh, and is anchored in the teachings of the apostles. We also don't really know who or where the audience of this letter were. They knew the Old Testament and its story, and from the Jewishness of the letter, we have come to believe that this letter was clearly written to Jewish Christians, and so the name of the letter had, has become the letter to the Hebrews. 
Ironically enough, unlike Paul's letter, which Paul's letters, which begin with a clear introduction, a greeting, perhaps even a parting final benediction at the end, this letter almost reads more like a sermon. It's sort of a, a sermonic letter. Maybe it was read in worship or intended to be read in worship. But nonetheless, the Jewish Christian audience to which it was written have received this message in order to point them to Jesus, to help them incorporate this new life and message of Christ into their Hebrew understanding of the Old Testament. And so from the very beginning of the letter, it's looking backwards to our ancestors, to our history, to the story from which we come to teach us and to remind us who Jesus is. And so the This letter, this sermon's introduction begins, as I will read, in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. I invite you to to have that text in front of you. Perhaps read along with me as I read. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world's. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." And so the book of Hebrews begins not just with a thought, but with a sound. The sound of a preacher's voice, of a a letter bursting forth to remind us of something. First of all, in verse 1, we're reminded that God speaks. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors. And in these last days, he has spoken to us. With beautiful alliteration and and prose, this eloquent speech of Hebrews begins to tell us that there is a God who reveals himself, that he shows himself to us. He's not a silent, distant force who, who kind of impassively is out there regulating the universe, but God is known as a talker. Tom Long says he's one who has been Speaking and arguing and pleading and wooing and commanding and telling stories and conversing and generally spinning words across the lines between heaven and earth since the beginning of time. And so in verse 1, we encounter what's ultimately a metaphor, speech, talk, for the way that God shows himself to us. God reveals God moves, God breaks, God shakes, God labors. God is a talker. He speaks creation into being and the moment he creates one in his image, he longs to be in relationship with humankind, to to speak to them. But God is not just a a being who longs to talk to a wall as if he was a a person who was annoying or droned on and on or a radio broadcast that wouldn't shut up or an alarm that says the same thing over and over again. Scripture reveals God as a God who wants and desires and longs for a partner, someone to listen to and to speak to in return. And he invites in some mysterious and, and 
graceful way, humankind to hear him and to speak in return, to be in relationship and to communicate with the God, the creator of all things. And so as was the experience of these Hebrews, they knew and we know that God spoke to our ancestors. And he spoke in many and various ways, it says. Other translations say in many forms or fashions or fragments he spoke. But the speech of God isn't just this nonstop chatter. It's a conversation. It ebbs and it flows. God chooses at times to reveal himself in, in great detail and in great amounts and in, in power and might and at other times in stillness and quietness and in gentleness. And so the writer of Hebrews Faithful to the, to the narratives of the whole Old, Old Testament knows that to be the people of God is not just to be given some secret illumination or some mystical enlightenment, but to be drawn into this lively and life-changing conversation. The God who speaks to a people who ought to have ears to hear and to speak and act in response. And so, for example, God speaks to Samuel in the temple. But that divine speech is then interrupted in 1 Samuel 3 by a long period when the word of the Lord was rare. He speaks to the Canaanite woman who came begging to Jesus, begging for mercy for her tormented daughter. His word of grace and healing come only after this long cryptic period of silence in Matthew 15. So God's conversation is speaking and revealing ebbs and flows and he had chosen primarily in the past to speak by what the Old Testament knew as prophets. Those who heard and delivered the word of God. But, verse 2 tells us, in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. A new word has broken forth, a new way it turns out that when God's speech comes, when he wants to talk to human beings, he might use a burning bush or an angel or the heavens or Moses or, or a Jeremiah. They could be summoned to do the talking on God's behalf if he wanted to. But the main way God had spoken up to this point was by the prophets. He had used people before human vehicles to carry his word, to, to disclose the divine speech to the people of God, Moses and Aaron, Rahab and Deborah, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos, just to name a few. But this new word is not just a prophet. No, in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. This new wor word that is broken in, this new thing that God has said is coming from the very agent of creation who preexisted creation, who brought it into motion, who, who knows it and created it. Verse 3 says, He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And so we're learning, and we're learning here in, in verses 3 and 4 that the, the emphasis falls 
on the continuity between this word and every other word spoken to Israel. The prophets are being enlightened, fulfilled, and we come to know Jesus not just as a new word, but as, as the unlocking word, as the revealing word that teaches us and tells us all about the other scriptures, the key, the clue to all of history. And so every word, every prior word spoken by God to the people of God has been leading up to this final, ultimate word. And it's a word spoken in Jesus the Son. That's the theology of Hebrews in a nutshell in this opening introduction. The last and perfect pearl in a beautiful strand of divine words is seen right here in Jesus. And it's not just a word being spoken to, but it comes to us in these last days. The, the sun is breaking in God's victorious reign, an announcing of a dawn of triumph. It's ringing throughout creation, a word spoken in Jesus, not just an elaboration of what God had already done, not just some new details or new descriptions, something entirely new, something superior to everything that has come before. And we'll see that as we go throughout Hebrews, as the author emphasizes at each turn that Jesus is greater than angels. Though angels are powerful and have delivered the words of God, Jesus is greater than Moses Though he was a wonderful and powerful leader of God's people, Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Though he is in himself a high priest, Jesus is more. And if you pay attention, if you'll listen closely, if you'll look again, you'll discover that there is a life-changing and, and world-shaping reality that has been revealed in him. That little word that we get in verse 3, the word used for precise expression or exact imprint, that's what Jesus is called. It's from the Greek word that uh, gives us our English word character, the word character. That's an interesting word in both Greek and English when we talk about characters in a play or maybe a, a characters of the alphabet. What do the two have in common? Well, where does that idea begin? Really at the bottom of it all in the ancient world is the idea of, of engraving or stamping. We know it to be a stamping, maybe soft or hot metal with a pattern of, uh, that will then be marked on that piece of metal. So for example, the emperor would employ an engraver who could carve a royal portrait. People in those days didn't know what their emperor looked like. And so the, the emperor's face was put on coins or other objects so that the, the whole empire might know what their leader looked like. And so an engraver would carve a royal portrait. Maybe put some suitable words or abbreviations on a stamp or a die made of hard metal. And then that engraver would use the stamp to make a coin. And so the, that coin would have the exact impression the exact expression of what was on the stamp. And so the word character in, in ancient Greek was used to mean just that. An accurate impression left by the stamp on a coin. Some speak of it as the, the stamp or the seal that a king or emperor would use to stamp the wax seal on an envelope before sending a message. And so in the broader sense of, of a person or a thing, a character is a perfect impression, a type, if you will. 
It's as though the exact imprint of the Father's very nature and glory has been precisely reproduced in the soft metal of the Son's human nature. And now, now it's there for all the world to see. Jesus, we're told, is that exact imprint, the very character. If we want to know what God is like, we don't have to look elsewhere. We have to look only to Jesus. We can look at his life and his teaching and his mercy and his justice, and we can be confident that we're not seeing something like God. We are seeing the true image of God. Or as Hebrews puts it, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's very being. The reflection of God's glory. Now there's much we don't see at present that we would like to see. There's much about God's kingdom, God's ways, God's salvation that remain completely foreign to us. Inscrutable are your ways, say the scriptures. But we're not left completely in the dark. Because we see Jesus. We see Jesus. And when we do, when we pay attention, when we look more closely, we discover that in him we have seen and understood and come to know the glory of God and what it means to be human. And as we follow that word, as we look to him, we're shown a new and better way for life. He is the one, verse 4 continues, who had made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And the author of Hebrews continues with this rhetorical question as he begins his first comparison, the comparison to angels for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. In verse 8, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 10, And in the beginning, Lord, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they will all wear out like clothing. Like a cloak, you will roll them up. And like clothing, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never end. But to which of the angels... Has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels spirits in the divine service sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So by this first of comparisons, we're reminded that Jesus is greater than the angels, the Torah, Moses, the promised land, the priests, Melchizedek, sacrifices, the covenant. Those are all coming. He is God's word, a hope for new creation, our eternal priest, the perfect sacrifice. And we must, chapter 2 begins, we must therefore pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not 
drift away from it. Look who Jesus is, Hebrews begins. And begin paying even greater attention to him. Scientists have studied the brain and attention for some time now, trying to discover what it means to give something covert attention or overt attention, what it means to to focus on something and how the brain responds when someone is sort of listening or fully listening, sort of looking or totally looking. Recently, I saw scientists put on display an example of what it means to pay attention to an object. A series of volunteers were shown on the same screen two flickering squares of light flashing one at very, very rapid pace like a strobe light, the other a slow blinking square. They were invited to pay attention to one and then the other all while their brain activity was observed. What they discovered was that participants asked to look at the flickering square on the left, flickering fast, had brain activity, brain waves in their interpretive parts of the brain that began to resonate at the same rate as that square. If they were looking at the slower, blinking, flickering square, their brain waves and activity would begin to resonate at the same rate as that square. The example of this scientific experiment illustrates what's true for our lives. What you see in others and yourself, that our character and our words and our commitments are reflective of what we are paying greater attention to. Not only that, but it's this alarming reminder that when our attention wanders, when our eyes stray or are drawn for whatever reason to fixate on something that's contrary to the pattern of Jesus, that's, that's flashing at a different race or, or pulsing in a different way, that we're changed by that too. We're transformed, altered, conformed to the pattern of this world, Romans says, to a way that is destructive. We know in our lives that that we adopt thoughts and perspectives and behavior that's not representative of the life that God offers to the world, the life that Jesus models for us and invites us to enjoy both now and for eternity. And so we are called in this book and in this first opening chapter not just to pay attention to Jesus, but to turn our attention away from those things that would pull us from his righteousness and grace and love and truth that are supposed to so mediate and permeate our lives. I wonder today, where is your attention? What are the voices that you're listening to that shape your vision of reality, that shape what it means to live your life what you strive for, what commitments you make. What are you paying attention to? And might you look more closely today, again and again, at this one Jesus who so perfectly reflects to us the glory of God and the beauty of humanity all in one. Could it be that you need to listen again to this new word that God has spoken? Frederick Buechner says, 
God never seems to weary of trying to get across to us. Word after word, God tries in search of the right word. When creation itself doesn't seem to say it right, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of it, God tries flesh and blood. God tried saying it in Noah, but Noah was a drinking man. God tried saying it in Abraham, but Abraham was a little too Mesopotamian with all those wives and whiskers. God tried Moses, but Moses was trying too hard. Tried David, but David was too pretty for his own good. Toward the end of his rope, God tried saying it in John the Baptist with his locusts and his honey and hellfire preaching. And you get the feeling that John might almost have worked except he lacked something small but crucial, like a sense of the ridiculous or a balanced diet. So God tried once more. Jesus, says Frederick Buechner, is the mo-just of God, the most appropriate exact word. The word became flesh, John said, and all flesh, this flesh. Jesus was the word made flesh, which means that he's take it or leave it in this life, death, life. God finally manages to say what God is and what human is. It means just as your words have you in them, your breath, your spirit, your power, your hiddenness. So Jesus was God in him. Jesus is that word of God, friends. As C.S. Lewis says, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else. Look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else. This letter to the Hebrews begins by introducing Jesus as the most exact, appropriate, perfect word. Not for what you needed yesterday, not for what you might need later not for some circumstances and not others, but for all things. He is the exact, appropriate, perfect, and all-sufficient word for your life today. Are you listening? Will you pay much closer attention? Join me as we pray together. God, we know that we are in need now as much as ever of a new word, a new word from God for our lives, for our hearts, for the hearts of your people as we respond to the world around us. God, so many things pull and, and vie for our attention to distract us or draw us away from the kingdom of God in our midst. And we desire to welcome and to celebrate and to be agents of your reign on earth, your reconciliation in this world. And God, to do that, to know that and to be that, we need to, to see you. We need to hear you speak. And so we pray that as we 
invite ourselves to the letter of the Hebrews that you would speak to us once again. That as we fix our gaze on Jesus, that you would transform our hearts and minds over and over. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to that task of being people with ears that hear and with hands and feet that go to work when God has spoken. We pray these things in Jesus' name, the name above all names, the one who is the exact imprint of God's glory. In Jesus' name, amen.